The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. We're in the midst of a study of uh, spiritual gifts, understanding spiritual gifts, and studying 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 because that's where Paul was dealing with that question with the Corinthian church. I want to review just a little bit. We've gotten through the end of chapter 12. Uh, just to review that a little bit, we had in the first three verses a test for authenticity of spiritual gifts. That is, there were people that were standing up and saying, Jesus is accursed. And they were saying it with such enthusiasm that people were saying, well, that's, that's different. But evidently that person is speaking by the Spirit of God. And it turns out that he wasn't. So, uh, you know, there is a counterfeit to true spiritual gifts. It continues even today. Um, we'll talk about that more as we go along. But first, we want to make sure that we're getting spiritual gifts from the right source, that is, from the Spirit of God Himself. And secondly, a unified source of spiritual gifts is the triune God. That was in verses 4 through 11. It talked about the variety of gifts and the ministries those gifts produce on the one hand, but the fact that they all come from one God. It also included, this section did, a partial listing of the gifts, and we divided those up into three categories, gifts for the mind, gifts for the will, gifts for the tongue. Now, we're going to go over those same gifts today, but we're going to look at a more comprehensive list from the New Testament, every place that mentions a spiritual gift. There's 18 of them in all. And then finally, in chapter 12, we saw the unified nature of spiritual gifts a spiritual body. And what is it that Paul does in this section? Let me say that again. <laughs> what is it that Paul does in the section of verses 12 through 31 to kind of make an analogy for the way that spiritual gifts operate? He uses the, the analogy of a physical body to demonstrate how gifts work together to accomplish uh, edification and building up of the church in the body of Christ. And remember, remember the, he used several different metaphors, if you will, of how lesser members can't look at greater members and say, well, I'm not an eye or I'm not a head, therefore I'm not part of the body. You can't denigrate your own spiritual gift. God is the one who decides what spiritual gifts each one of us has. And God is the one that expects us to put those into practice. At the same time, the greater members can't look down on the lesser members and say, well, you're just a foot. You don't really have a whole lot uh, to say in the matter. The feet can't get to where the body wants to go. I mean, the body can't get to where, the, where it wants to go apart from the feet. So the feet are critical. And in the same way, whatever part you have in the body of Christ, it's critical that you play that role and that you employ that gift. God has so designed the body so as to give each member an appropriate honor. Certain members get more time up front, if you will, or more exposure, and they get honor from fellow members. But God honors those that, don't, that have gifts that operate more behind the scenes. And it's important for those members to recognize that and to recognize that they, all of us, are serving the Lord ultimately as we exercise our gifts. And 
even if you don't get recognition from others the way that some will, you still have recognition from God, and that's even more important. So today what we want to do is pause between our study of uh, chapters 12 through 14 and do two things. First, as I said earlier, we're going to give a more complete list of all the gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to divide those up into categories and give a brief description for each one. And then secondly, we want to provide some guidelines for how you can know what your spiritual gift is and how you can put it into practice. So that's where we're headed. First is we're going to look at the 18 spiritual gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament. This time we're going to use a different set of categories to divide these up into four different categories. Revelatory gifts, confirmatory gifts, speaking gifts, and auxiliary gifts. The first two, revelatory and confirmatory, have a total of 10 gifts in them, and they have ceased to exist. What, why would they cease to exist? They're no longer Exactly. They're no longer necessary because they, were, they provided foundational truth for the church, and they were the foundation upon which the church was built. And as the church matured over the course of time, those gifts became unnecessary. What was the important thing that happened as part of that maturity process to help render these gifts no longer necessary? Exactly. That's right. The, the New Testament was completed, and now we have the full revelation of God, right? We have a revelation that takes us all the way to the new heavens and new earth. And we don't need uh, prophecy the way that the first century church did when they didn't have the complete canon of Scripture. So the next two categories are speaking gifts and auxiliary gifts. They have a total of eight gifts in those two categories. And they started at Pentecost, just like the first two categories did, but they continue into the present age. Now, some of these we've covered uh, in an earlier lesson, and we won't spend as much time on them, but I want us to walk through all of these just so you'll be familiar with every New Testament gift that's mentioned, and that'll help us in our second part to identify what our individual gifts are. So let's look first at the revelatory gifts. These provided revelation of previously unknown truth and an accompanying ability to communicate that truth either through oral instruction or through writing. Remember, we, when we looked at this, we talked about the connection between this gift or some of these gifts and words like mystery, where a mystery in the biblical sense of the word is <clears throat> a truth that was previously unknown and is now being made known. And that's what was happening, you know, with the apostles and the prophets in particular. God was giving this new truth about the church that wasn't known in the Old Testament times. Old Testament was all about Israel. But once Christ came, he died, he resurrected and went back to heaven. He sent the Spirit with these gifts and he sent new revelation about the nature of these gifts. Or the nature of the church, I should say. So first is the gift, which is also an office, of apostleship. Now, this, this office, this gift, uh, it's mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4. It has some requirements that came with it, right? Not just anybody could be an apostle. One, you had to have contact with Christ during his earthly ministry. And most of these apostles, Paul might be some exception, 
uh, it raises the question in my mind of how much contact Paul had with Christ over the course of Christ's earthly ministry. Paul was a good Pharisee. He came to the feast. I'm certain he would have heard Christ teach, but we don't really have a record of that in Scripture. But as an apostle, you had to be with Christ during his earthly ministry. You had to be a, a witness of him after he was resurrected, and you had to be personally commissioned by Christ. Paul certainly met those last two. The first one, uh, we're not so sure. But the other, the 12, certainly did that. And that's who we normally think of when we think of apostles, right? It's the 12 original apostles, Matthias replacing Judas, and Paul, because those are identified as apostles. But there likely were more than just those. And the reason I say that is Scripture at least infers that. Let me give you a couple of references that talk about that. Galatians 1.19, this is Paul speaking. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And he was not one of the twelve, right? But he's called an apostle here. And then again, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, and he's talking about the appearances of Christ after his resurrection. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain uh, until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, all the apostles seems like that's a different group than the 12 because he mentioned them earlier. So the apostles, along with the prophets, were foundational for the church. And they had a unique authority. They weren't restricted to one local body. They traveled around and really built up the body of Christ universal through evangelism and discipleship. Their message was authenticated by signs, miracles, and wonders. And we have several references that speak to that. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs, and again, this is Paul speaking. 2 Corinthians is really all about Paul defending his ministry to this church. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And then in Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4, this is the first of several warning passages in the book of Hebrews. What was being warned against in Hebrews? There was like Jews who were, had accepted Christ, but then they were, trying, they were thinking about turning back to Judaism. Exactly. And so they're very strong warnings because to depart and go back to Judaism is to depart from Christ. And that's what he's warning against. So as part of the warning passage in Hebrews 2, it says, It, the gospel, was at the first spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now we're going to see that those are individual gifts, the the affecting of miracles, the gift of healing. But as an apostle, you had a lot of them. You had a lot of those same gifts. It wasn't just being an apostle. It was the ability to have, you know, authenticate your message through these miraculous works. All right, the next gift is prophecy. We often think of prophecy as the ability to tell the future and because God reveals that to you, and that is part of the gift. Remember, Paul, in his journey... On, uh, as he was headed to Rome, the ship got in trouble in a storm, and 
this is the lowest guy on the ship probably because he's a Jewish prisoner, he's in chains, uh, and yet he becomes the commander of the ship in many ways. He's telling them what they need to do in order to have their lives preserved. Um, we won't go back and read that account again because we read it earlier, but prophecy was more than just telling the future. It was also just, uh, again, receiving revelation and being able to communicate that to local churches. Um, not all prophecy was preserved in the New Testament, but the one that was the ones that were essential for the life of the church from that point forward were preserved in the New Testament books. We have a very strong warning in the book of Revelation, which closed the canon. That was the last book of the New Testament. And there's a warning not to add to that. Revelation 22:18 says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. He's talking about the book of Revelation. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. So, again, Revelation takes us to the end of God's revelation to us. It's not only the, the book of Revelation, but it's the end of the totality of Revelation from Genesis to Revelation. And there's no more need for prophecy because God has takes us all the way to the eternal state. There were female prophetesses in the early church. You're familiar with this from Acts 21. It says, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. He's talking about the seven back in Acts 6. We stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And again, this was for this period of time. We normally think of speakers and teachers in the church of being men, but there were female prophetesses um, in the early church. Acts 21, verse 8, 8, 8 and 9, actually. Mm -hmm. So we have apostleship, prophecy, the distinguishing of spirits. The, the purpose of having this gift was because there were false prophets, and we already saw that with people standing up and saying things in the church that they were not speaking from the Spirit of God. So you had to have people that could hear a prophecy and be able to tell whether it came from God or not. Um, we don't have a, an explicit example of this happening within a Christian assembly, but we do have some passages that uh, in, you know, at least relate to this. 1 Corinthians 14.29 says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. That is, pass judgment on the legitimacy of the prophecy. Um, we also have an example of, of Paul. Remember the girl that was following after Paul and his company crying out, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Was that a true statement? Absolutely it was true. What did they end up doing with this girl? They cast a demon out of her because they didn't need that kind of help. Even though what she was saying was true, um, she wasn't in league with them. And, you know, she ends up having this demon cast out of her. So Paul exercised that gift. He evidently knew that she wasn't speaking from the Spirit of God when she said what she said. 
The word of wisdom is a gift that we talked about earlier. Again, this is not wisdom in the general sense of the word. We're all commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ in wisdom. Uh, we do that largely through the book of Proverbs, but other sections of Scripture as well. This is a specific spiritual function belonging to a particular group of people that, again, uh, related to new revelation, new revelation about the gospel, new revelation about the church as Jew and Gentile in one body, uh, New Testament truth. In essence, it is divine revelation received by those early Christian leaders where they which they took and transformed into words. They got this revelation in their minds from God, and they transformed that into words and communicated it both orally and in written form. And some of it became New Testament books that we have today. Uh, the word of wisdom is referenced by the Apostle Paul in passages like 1 Corinthians 2, Romans 11, 25, Ephesians 3, 1 to 7. Uh, Peter talks about it in 2 Peter 3, 15. This is something we talked about before, so I'm not going to spend a lot more time on it today, but it's connected with this idea of mysteries and revelation. Now, the word of knowledge, we also talked about it before, it's related to the word of wisdom, but this is somebody who takes what's been communicated through wisdom and applies it in different ways and, and at different times from when it was originally given. We saw Peter do that in 2 Peter 3 and Jude do it in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. All right, so that's the first five of the ten gifts that no longer operate. Obviously, we don't still have apostles today, right? Because they couldn't meet their qualifications. And we have the writing of the apostles preserved in Scripture. So that's all we need. God's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Um, during the time of the tribulation, there will be the two witnesses and they'll prophesy. Is that because the church is gone? Yes. They will still have copies of the Bible then. That's right. Uh, some of it, I think, will be prophecies of judgment, you know, and maybe even related to what folks are going through in the tribulation period and a call to repent. So it's interesting that even during the tribulation period, God is still calling people to repent, and people will still be saved over the course of that time. So it's a good point. Um, there will still be prophets, uh, these two witnesses in the revelation period and the tribulation period, the 144,000 may also have a special ability to communicate truth during that time, um, and it will be continue to be a means of evangelizing and trying to bring people to repentance. An awful lot of people will hear it not repent, not want to repent, but you look at Revelation 7, it has the 144,000, also has this huge multitude from every tribe, nation, and tongue. A lot of people read that and they think, well, that's the church. That's actually people that come to faith during the tribulation period. So will they be like, sort of like the Old Testament prophets during the day of the Lord that would be prophesying in that time? Yes. Yep. Just proclaiming the, the word of the Lord. And I, I agreed. I think the Bible will still be there, but these will be men that are especially have an ability to, and, and have the ability to do miracles as well, to authenticate that they're messengers of God, just like in the New Testament period. <clears throat> Let's look now at the confirmatory gifts. What is it that they're confirming? Anybody? 
I think they're appropriately named. Okay, that the person is from God and that the message is from God. <clears throat> the first in this category is the gift of faith. And this one is actually a, something that runs through the rest of them because faith, and the, the, faith has to be exercised in order to exercise the gifts that will follow. And again, this is not the faith of all believers. We all have to exercise faith, right, when we embrace the gospel. This is a faith uh, that is believes God in spite of extreme obstacles. It's like the faith that Jesus talked about. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can say this mountain be tossed in the sea, and it will. It is a, super, a special ability which enables a person to believe God in the face of those obstacles. And again, we will read Acts 27 in this case because it really highlights Paul's uh, possession of this gift. Keep in mind, he's... He's a prisoner on this ship. The ship is in a tremendous storm, and it's, it looks as if very little chance of them being saved through it. <clears throat> but what happens? An angel appears to Paul, and here's what it says. Paul says, For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. That's where he was headed. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Think about that. Every single person on that ship was going to be delivered because that's what God decided to do. He was going to deliver Paul. He's going to let everybody else be saved from the storm as well. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I've been told. Now, Paul's kind of putting himself out there to state this when everything looked like it wasn't going to happen that way. But it was true. I think it was like 276 people that were on the ship, and they all got to land safely. Paul was able to make that bold prediction concerning the safety of the sh entire ship because he had this gift of faith. <clears throat> we also have uh, a, kind of an inference, and we'll get there next Sunday when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, but Paul writes there, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries... And all knowledge, so you can see how a prophet would have those two gifts. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains. That's the kind of faith that he's talking about here. Gifts of healings, we talked about two weeks ago, I guess it was. These were not the result of medical practice, the way that uh, doctors work today. But they were healing by a special supernatural gift of spiritual power. Again, the purpose was to confirm both the message and the messenger, and we had apostles that had this gift. Gifts of miracles went beyond just healings to even something like raising somebody from the dead. I mean, that is an incredible work, power. Um, we see this. We see one example of this in Paul's ministry in Acts 9. I'm sorry, this is Peter. Acts 9, 40, 42, Peter healing Tabitha in Joppa. But Peter sent them all out, knelt down and prayed, and turned to the body. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, calling the saints and widows. He approached her. He presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. 
So that's just one example. As you read through the book of Acts, you have all kinds of healings and miracles taking place at the hand of the apostles. And it was, again, used to authenticate them as God's messengers. Kinds of tongues. We talked about this one as well. It was an ability to speak a foreign language that you had never studied before. Uh, that was certainly the nature of the gift in Acts 2, right? Because you had all these people coming from all over the Roman Empire to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. A lot of them probably couldn't understand and speak Greek, but some of them would not have been able to. And you had these men upon whom the Spirit had just fallen who were able to proclaim the mighty acts of God in the language of the people there. And they recognized that this was, you know, what in the world's going on there? These are untaught Galilean men, and they're proclaiming these things in the language that we understand. So I make that point because awful lot of confusion still today about tongues and what it is and whether or not it's a special prayer language or some heavenly language for which there is no uh, human counterpart. That's not the gift of tongues as exercised and taught in Scripture. This was a gift, too, that Corinth had a lot of trouble with. And Paul's going to devote a whole chapter to how they should exercise this gift. And he's going to make clear there that, one, if you exercise it in the church, you make sure somebody's there to interpret why. Exactly. And, I mean, if, let's say that somebody stood up and spoke in tongues and somehow people knew that it was from God, but there was nobody to interpret. You don't get anything out of that, right? There's no edification. That's the thing that Paul emphasizes over and over. You know, you can, you can have all these languages, but if you don't understand what's being said, you, you can't communicate and you can't learn. And that's the purpose of spiritual gifts. So we'll get to that and talk about it more when we get there. Finally, there was the interpretation of tongues. And just as you could have a supernatural ability to speak in a language that you'd never studied, you could have a supernatural ability to translate from a language that you'd never studied into your own language or into the language of your, the audience so that they could be uh, edified. Now, the gift of tongues, Paul says, and we'll look at this in 1 Corinthians 14, that it was a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. And to me, that's, that's how it was used. Paul said he spoke in tongues more than all of them. He spoke in tongues as he traveled around, and he used it to proclaim the gospel to people that didn't speak Greek, couldn't understand him if he spoke Greek, and, and they could hear the gospel in their own tongue through that means. Okay. That's the confirmatory gifts. There's five revelatory gifts, five confirmatory, confirmatory gifts. And I think it's clear, I hope it's clear to everyone, that these gifts no longer exist, right? We don't have apostles today. We don't have people going around healing somebody and then proclaiming a new message. The reason that we don't need those gifts anymore is because we have the completed New Testament canon. Now let's look at the gifts that do still operate today. And the first category here is the speaking gifts. <clears throat> These, again, began at the church, began with the church at Pentecost. These do continue to the present day. 
and they contribute to the growth of the body of Christ in several ways. Evangelism, for example, adds numbers, adds new members to the body of Christ. Teachers instruct members in doctrine. Pastor teachers provide shepherding guidance and persuade believers to obey God's word. So we're going to see that all these gifts are still operative and still building the church today. First is evangelism. Uh, evangelist is mentioned explicitly in Ephesians chapter 4 as one of the gifted persons there. There's only one person, we already read the passage that mentions him, and that's Philip. He's called Philip the Evangelist. He's the only one in the New Testament uh, that's explicitly called an evangelist. His ministry is described in Acts chapter 8, but this gift is a special ability to persuade and convince somebody of their need for Christ. Perhaps some of you have this gift. Uh, all of us have a responsibility to witness. So you can't say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm just going to stay quiet. No. But somebody with the gift is going to be especially good at it. That's the bottom line. You know, you have certain people in the natural world that are really good salesmen. I'm not one of them. I would never want to be in sales. But you have people that uh, really see the opportunities for evangelism, and they do it, and they're, they're especially good at persuading people. That's what that gift is. And obviously it's an important gift because it adds members to the body of Christ. Teaching. This gift consists of an ability to grasp, arrange, and present material that has already been revealed. So a teacher in the church today is teaching from the Scripture. He's not getting new revelation, but he's taking revealed truth Old and New Testament, and making it clear. And God has appointed teachers in the church. Remember, they came after, right after apostles and prophets. Teaching is very important in the Christian faith. To me, if you're in the market for a new church, the first thing you want to do is make sure they've got sound teaching, sound doctrine, and sound men who have been trained and can teach the Word of God clearly. That's the most important requirement, I would say, and looking for a new church. <clears throat> Doctrine in the Christian faith is extremely important, and that's what really what we do every Sunday, right? We teach, and you learn, and we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ that way. It's interesting. A lot of times you'll hear people say something along the lines of, God only had one son, and he made him a preacher. Well, if you look at the number of references in the Gospels, Jesus is called a teacher between 45 and 50 times. He's actually never called a preacher. I'm not saying he didn't preach. But his teaching ministry was the bulk of his ministry. I also want to be careful not to draw too fine a line between teaching and preaching. I think there is a line, but I think good teaching includes exhortation, and good preaching is teaching. So some people make more of a distinction than that. I wouldn't be in that group. Paul also was a notable teacher, both publicly and privately in large settings and one-on-one. -on -one. Um, again, that gift is ranked third in the list in 1 Corinthians 12. The first two served, apostles and prophets, as the foundation of the church. Teachers continue today. And you think about the importance of doctrine, of understanding what the Scripture says. It's the means by which 
our minds are renewed and we become more and more like Christ. Closely related to the gift of teaching is pastor teaching. This is a gift that's mentioned also in Ephesians 4.11. Uh, obviously, some people can be teachers and not be pastors, but all pastors have to be teachers. Pastor teaching includes not only the ability to communicate truth and teach the scripture, but also a shepherdly concern for people. Um, elders in local churches are those who possess this gift and exercise it for the good of the whole body. <clears throat> when Christ commanded Peter to shepherd my church, and when Peter in turn commanded the leaders to whom he wrote to shepherd the flock of God, this is the gift that is needed to do that. Exhortation. This gift primarily involves the persuasion not of unbelievers to convert to Christ, but of believers, whether to encourage them to stay true to the Lord, to persevere during difficulty, uh, to restore them on a path from which they've departed, <coughs> or to assure them. You know, sometimes when people, something traumatic happens to them, like they lose a loved one, or that's the one I think about the most, but they go through some other real difficulty in their life, they need assurance that the Lord is with them through that, and that's part of what the gift of exhortation does. Paul, Timothy, and Barnabas are all good New Testament examples of those who possess this gift. Let me read you some passages that illustrate that. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's the purpose of exhortation, is to say, stay true. Paul talks about Timothy doing this in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. <clears throat> what was Barnabas' nickname? He was a son of encouragement or exhortation. Um, he's talked about Acts 11, verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. This is at Antioch. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. So you not only see those men as examples of exhortation, but you see what the purpose of exhortation was in each case. Finally, we get to what, for lack of a better term, really, it's called auxiliary gifts. Maybe complementary gifts would be another way to think about these. And just as the confirmatory gifts supported the revelatory gifts, we said that they confirmed both the messengers and the message, these auxiliary gifts support the speaking gifts. Without the support of the auxiliary gifts, the body would be crippled. Let's run through these. Helps or ministry. This gift refers to the many different kinds of physical help or relief 
uh, that are supplied when the need arises. The men in Acts 6 were, had this gift. Remember, the, the reason that they designated those men is that they didn't want the apostles to have to wait on tables. Not because they didn't love the widows, but because it was more important for them to devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Paul had this gift exercised toward him, and, and David even alluded to this uh, with Epaphroditus this morning, but others did this for Paul. Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy 1, Onesimus uh, mentioned in Philemon 1, verses 10 through 13. Again, this is one of those gifts that's not recognized like speaking gifts are, but it's just as critical. And it's important that those who have this gift be motivated to do it out of love because if you do it and you don't get recognized for it and it bothers you you really have to kind of recalibrate if you will and think about all the different ministries that require this gift I mean even I know some of you have this gift you may not know it I'm going to ask you about that more in a little bit but I know some of you have this gift because of the way that you see something that needs to be done and you just do it. You don't have to be told to do it. You want to pitch in and do it. And it can be things like you know, preparing this room, this building for a Sunday morning service. It can be doing stuff for the ladies' tea. Uh, this is a very critical gift and it's something that has to be done even though it doesn't always get a lot of attention. <clears throat> All right. Showing mercy. This is mentioned in Romans chapter 12, and that's another one of the passages that talks about the gifts. We know what those passages are, right? 1 Corinthians 12 is what we're studying in depth. Romans 12 is another place where gifts are mentioned. Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. Those kind of easily remember because the chapters are the same, <clears throat> two, two pairs. This is a specialized form of the gift of helps that shows itself in particular to those who are going through a difficult time, whether distress, misery, pain, anxiety, something along those lines. <clears throat> Dor Dorcas is a New Testament example of this gift. Uh, we read about uh, Tabitha. Well, that's the one that we read about earlier. Let me read it again. I'll, I'll give you a little more context. Acts 9.36 now in Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. So that's the one that we read about the resurrection earlier. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. So she had that gift of mercy. And as we already read, when she became sick and ultimately died, uh, Peter came and exercised the gift of miracles and brought her back to life. Epaphroditus, again, was another good example of this gift risking his life for the sake of the gospel in his ministry to the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> Giving is a spiritual gift. Again, we're all responsible to give. We're all stewards of what God entrusts to us, not just in spiritual gifts, but also in the material resources that he gives to us. But the gift of giving, again mentioned in Romans 12.8, is a special ability to do that. It's often accompanied by special ability to make money you know some people have that and when they have that and they trust in Christ they're willing to give large uh, portions of money to support Christian ministries uh, 
and do it to maximum benefit. Barnabas, again, was an example of someone who exercised this gift when he sold his property and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Now, giving doesn't have to be somebody who just makes some money and has surplus and gives it that way. It also somebody that maybe has more modest means, but they really prefer to live a very modest lifestyle, even a frugal lifestyle, so that they can give more. There are just some people that want to do that, and they're gifted that way. Finally, we have the gift of governing or ruling. Paul mentions this gift in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and Romans 12. It's a special ability to lead. And again, elders have to have this ability. The proving of their leadership takes place where? In the home. What does Paul say? If a man can't lead in his own home, how can he lead the, the family of God? <clears throat> Leadership in a local church is to be a plurality of men rather than one person. And that's, that's why we have three elders in our church. Okay? So that's the gifts. That's the four categories of gifts. Revelatory, confirmatory, speaking, and auxiliary. Now we want to move to how do you know what your gift is and how do you use it? If I were to ask each one of you today, can you briefly describe your spiritual gift? How many of you could? Raise your hand. Okay, a few. Uh, That's not necessarily a bad thing because you could be exercising your gift and not know what it is. That's the more important thing is that you make sure you're exercising it. But uh, nothing wrong with knowing what your spiritual gift is, too. And we're going to talk about that. Nine steps to discover your spiritual gifts. This is, again, straight out of Dr. Thomas's book. I'm going to give them to you in very summarized form, but if you want to read about it in more detail, and even if you don't have a copy of the book want to borrow mine, I'll be glad to loan it to you. The first guideline... Become convinced that you have a spiritual gift. I hope you are convinced of that now. Peter says, as each one has received a special gift, that is, each believer, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We're in the midst of the study of the gifts now, and certainly by the time we finish, I hope you're convinced you have at least one spiritual gift, likely more than one, a combination of gifts. Secondly, know what the spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament are. That's why we did what we did this morning. So you're familiar with all the gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament. Thirdly, if you don't know what your gift is, pray. Think about it. Pray, seek the Lord, and see what he does. You know, it's always a good idea to pray no matter what uh, you're about to do and embark on. The same would apply to spiritual gifts. Pray for enlightenment as to what gifts you have. Fourthly, consider your natural, ability, natural abilities, circumstances, and resources. Now, spiritual gifts are different from those things, but oftentimes God uses those natural things in giving you a spiritual gift. He uses the experiences that you've had, and he's the one that controls those to determine what spiritual gift you will have. Think about it for the apostles, right? They had to have the experience of being with Christ, 
seeing the resurrected Christ and being commissioned by Christ. Otherwise, they couldn't qualify. Somebody who has the gift of giving, again, is going to have experiences and upbringing, maybe education, maybe a certain ability to make a larger amount of money and be able to, to give a big portion of that money because it's a surplus to him. On the other hand, by contrast, somebody who's scared to death to speak publicly, and I've, my understanding is that's one of the number one fears that people have, they're probably not going to have the gift of teaching because you have to be able to get up and, and speak in front of a crowd. So those are things that you consider as you try to understand what your spiritual gift is. This one may sound a little odd, but just try something. Try different ministries to help you find what your gifts are. There's nothing wrong with that. If you end up not having that gift, you've not sinned by trying to do something that you're not gifted at. And again, there's a, there's a sense in which all the things, all the gifts that we've just gone through that are still operative today, they're the responsibilities of all of us. You think, well, I don't have the gift of teaching. You ever, if you're a parent, you teach your kids, right? If you're evangelizing somebody, you're teaching them about Christ and the gospel. So there's definitely going to be areas that you excel at more, and that's how you kind of narrow down as to what your gift is. But don't be afraid to experiment, and that will help you discover what your gift is. After experimenting, self-evaluate. Make your own determination. Well, did I, did I excel at that? I think there's even a subjective side to saying, you know, I really got satisfaction out of that. That's not your ultimate aim. What is your ultimate aim as you exercise a spiritual gift? Glorify God, but, and what for others? Help edify other believers. So that should always be true, but you can... You can still get a certain satisfaction out of what do you do. There's nothing wrong with that as a secondary aim, if you will, and that will help you know whether or not you're gifted in that area. Seek the input of others, more mature and respected Christians that can help you identify what your gift is. I bet you some of you who didn't raise your hand, I could tell you what your gift is because I've seen the way you operate. And... You can do somebody else a service sometimes, even if they don't solicit your input, by telling them what you think their gift is. And again, you see it because of the way that those folks minister. Realize that you might not just have one gift, you might have a combination of gifts. That's a good thing. God constructs us like snowflakes in a way. No two of us are exactly alive. We're gifted different ways and you very likely have more than one gift. At the same time, recognize that there are different degrees of giftedness. You know, I'm no John MacArthur. I know that. I still think I can help benefit by teaching. And I've taken advantage of opportunities to do that, and I think people have received edification. So don't compare yourself to other people and say, well, I'm not near as good at that gift as that person is. I must not have it. There are degrees of giftedness. That's the way God has designed it. All right, so that is kind of how to know what your or how to discover what your gift is. 
How do you use them? Once you know what that gift is, first you want to seek to develop it. And even Timothy needed to do this, right? Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, beginning verse 13, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So that was Timothy's broad responsibilities in that location where he was. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which, has been, which, has, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying of, on of hands by the presbytery. You can neglect it. That's what that implies, and you don't want to. You know, think about some ways that you can develop your spiritual gift. Is if it's teaching, you want to make sure that you're trained. Doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to seminary, but you need to be trained well in the scripture. You might grow up in a church where you could do that within the local church setting. A Bible college or seminary can't give you the gifts, but it can develop them. You might also develop your gift by taking on an opportunity for service. And again, just seeing whether or not you're uh, gifted in a way that you might not realize until you try it. Make sure the exercise of your gift is in harmony with the fruit of the Spirit, particularly love. I say particularly love because when we study 1 Corinthians 13 next week, it's all about love, right? It's a chapter I know that you're familiar with. But it's also, as you see the way that Paul describes love, he's using the fruit of the Spirit to describe it. And love really is the ultimate fruit of the Spirit. You want to make sure your gifts are exercised in conjunction with love. That's something the Corinthians were not doing. And it is possible not to do it. You can have great gifts, and if they're not exercised in love, there's no profit. There's no edification. Again, we'll look at that in more detail next Sunday. <clears throat> Regulate the exercise of your gifts in light of other Christian duties. In other words, you might be in a situation where <clears throat> somebody is doing a ministry in the church, and you're looking at that person, and you say, you know what? I think I could do that better than that person. I think I've got the gift for that, that maybe that person doesn't have. It doesn't have to the degree that I have it. You don't want to think that way. Certainly, you don't want to interfere with somebody else's ministry in the church. You might be able to come alongside and help that person, but you don't want to displace them. And that's what I mean by regulate the exercise of your gifts in a loving way, uh, putting the needs and the interest of others ahead of your own. Avoid pride in the exercise of your gift. That should be obvious. And again, that was something that uh, I think some of the Corinthians were struggling with. Remember that every member of the body of, the, of Christ is gifted and needed. Just that mindset will help us. That's, those last two points are things that Paul especially made note of in chapter 12. So we want to take note of them as well. You know, above all, again, it's not critically important that you nail down with precision exactly what your gifts are. What is important is that you serve. I think you'll figure out what your gifts are over time. I, that's been my experience. Um, but the main thing is that you exercise the gifts that God has given you in service to the body. Okay. Next week, we'll look at the unquestioned superiority of spiritual fruit, which is love. Uh, we start at the very tail end of chapter 12 and go through 13. I'm not sure if we'll get all the way through 13 because there's some real meat at the end of 
13 that we'll want to deal with as far as the cessation of certain gifts. Paul even talks about it there. Um, but we'll, we'll see how far we get in 13. Certainly you could read that whole chapter between now and next Sunday as preparation. Um, if we get through all of it, you'll be well prepared. Any questions about anything that we've covered this morning? Should they just come to y'all? Like, I think of, like, Andre wanting to teach in the jail, so he came and said, hey, I would like to do this. And so y'all were like, okay, let's yeah. do this. Yeah. Is that what they should do? I think it's a great idea. I mean, all of us collectively uh, see things that not just one of us can see. And if you see that there's a need for a certain ministry in the church, or sometimes you can just start it and not, you know, necessarily need to talk to leadership, but they're... It would never hurt to go, come and ask the elders about it and, and go from there. I think it's a really good idea. And when someone's trying to evaluate spiritual gift, the, how much should they parse between natural gifting, like if they're professionally a teacher? I don't think it inherently means that because somebody can be a real expert in a certain area in which they teach and not be an expert in the Bible. Now, again, I think that experience of, again, teaching, studying, preparing to instruct a crowd would be helpful, but they need to make sure that they can teach biblical truth alongside whatever their regular subject matter is. And I do think it's, uh, like we said, there's a connection there, but you also want to make sure that you're not just operating in, in your natural giftedness. Any other questions? All right, next week I'm going to ask everybody what their spiritual gifts are, and I want you to tell them. <coughs> Not really. Next week we'll look at the, <clears throat> the great chapter of love in 1 Corinthians 13. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the way that you've designed the body. We thank you that you're the one that determines the gifts that we have and that when we exercise those gifts, uh, we get satisfaction out of it, to be sure, because we're doing what you call us to do. And there's always joy in that. But we also exercise the gifts for the benefit of others. What a beautiful design that you've made that way. And thank you for the instruction that we have of the human body and the way that it works together to accomplish things and the the importance of every member of the body. Help us to always be mindful of that in our local body of believers. I thank you for each person in our body and the gifts that you've given each one and the way that they exercise those gifts. And I pray that we would continue to do that, uh, particularly in the coming new year. I pray that you would bring us new people with gifts that perhaps we're lacking right now uh, and continue to grow our body that way. But I thank you that we can always trust that you'll do what's best, both for the church worldwide and for each local assembly. You oversee that and you add to it as you see fit. Help us as we launch out into the new year, Father, just to continue to be faithful and to walk faithfully uh, until Christ comes. We pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat>